Today we are going to look at John 7, as Larry's just read for us. The reason we are discussing this today is because of the calendar. Um, how many of you know that on Friday, uh, the, um, the people of Israel or the people of, you know, of, of Jewish faith celebrated a day called the Day of Atonement? Anybody? We got like one, two, five, ten. You got ten people. Okay, so about a third of us understand what, uh, or at least have noticed that it's now the Day of Atonement. One of the things that uh, takes place after the Day of Atonement is the Feast of Booths, which is why we're here in this passage. I thought it fitting both because of the calendar and also because of what the Lord has been putting on my heart for for our people, the, the people that I uh, have been talking to, the, the situations that I've been um, asked to handle or fix or help with. And I feel like, you know, as Christians, over and over again, we are called to follow the Lord. Um, but even that repetition of, of saying you need to follow Jesus, it, it's not a very, I mean, it, we do need to follow Jesus. Jesus calls us to follow him. But following Jesus in your mind, that, that phrase, that idea can turn into a performance where I need to follow Jesus. I need to catch up. You feel like the little kid uh, who's, you know, always running behind. If you've ever seen a, a slightly, probably pagan movie, Pulp Fiction, there's a wonderful joke in that movie. I don't recommend watching the movie unless you're a believer and, and you've got some wisdom and, and but because it's just a ridiculous film. But during the, during the movie, uh, all of Quentin Tarantino's movies are, are terrible, but there's some redeeming qualities. I'm going to be labeled as the pastor who used to watch bad movies. I, I referenced Fight Club last week, Pulp Fiction this week. In the, in the movie, one of the, one of the people tells a joke. You got Mama Tomato, Papa Tomato, and Baby Tomato. And uh, they're walking somewhere. And uh, Baby Tomato's running behind. So the father turns around and squashes the baby tomato and says, catch up. It's funny. It's, you know, we feel like we have to catch up with the Lord. And we, we even kind of see the father as that Papa tomato who is ready to turn around and squash us. And, um, but in the midst of our call to continually follow Christ, what we're really trying to say is we need to, again, examine and believe the gospel. But the gospel is not just you need to follow Christ. The gospel is Jesus saying to you, if you're thirsty, come and you can drink and you'll, you'll have water for your soul. And so that's what we're going to examine today. Um, after the Day of Atonement, the Israelites, they would come to Israel and they would set up these booths. Um, it's the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. And what it literally means is just a tent. You, you know, if you can imagine it, the, the Israelite takes his, maybe takes his family or children. They're going to, to Jerusalem. They've got the, you know, pop-up camper and little Coleman grill, and they're on their way to Israel. They're going to go spend a week around the city of Jerusalem, and they're going to worship God and, and, and pray. And the Day of Atonement is marked with fasting and with prayer petitions to God, and the desire to right one's wrongs, if you will. On, on the Day of Atonement and, and during the Feast of Booths, Israelites would go to their neighbors, anyone they've sinned against or had trouble with, they'd ask for forgiveness, and they'd seek to do some sort of, uh, you know, 
remediation of, of the damage. They'd, they'd undo uh, what was done. But in the Gospel of John here, Jesus goes right into this situation, and he puts himself in this context of the Day of Atonement and this feast, which the people are celebrating, and then makes an offer of the living water that really satisfies. That's what we're going to look at today. Through his offer, Jesus raises the question, in the midst of all of what's going on in this chapter, who is your ultimate source of life? And he does so in such a way that we see both at one time the beauty in the the love of the Father and the unconditional mercy that Jesus has for both you and for me. So that's what we're going to look at today. And these five, six things. Um, the, the first is the actual Feast of Booths and what was going on. We're going to look at the controversy around the person of Jesus, the ministry that he was doing, people's opinions about him, the turmoil that the nation was in because of who this Jesus character was. Uh, we're going to look at how Jesus confronts the people's invalid and unrighteous judgment and teaches them to use the right judgment. We're going to look at the actions of the Pharisees and how the actions that they took demonstrated the condition of their hearts and their true identity as children of of the devil. We're going to look at the free offer that Christ makes and then hopefully um, these officers that were uh, spoken of at the end of the chapter will testify to us again. So in this, in this chapter, in the entire Gospel of John, Jesus continually makes appeals to the public, to his hearers, to those who are listening to him speak, to come. And he does so in this chapter in a context. As we mentioned before, the Day of Atonement would be a time of fasting and praying and acknowledging your sins and going to God and, and asking for forgiveness and then also going to your neighbor. And so there, the... Uh, context of this passage, the context of the situation is people who are coming to God because God commanded them to uh, in the law. He, the Feast of Booths was set up by the Lord as a special time for Israel to remember their sins and to come before the Lord and acknowledge their sins, to ask for forgiveness and to seek to repair what had been made uh, damaged. And so they're they're in this context, and the, the brothers are telling Jesus to go up to the feast. If you read the passage, it says uh, that at this time, Jesus' brothers didn't believe in him. Now, who are Jesus' brothers? They're his siblings who were born of uh, Joseph and Mary. Um, some people say that they weren't Jesus' natural siblings. I think it's pretty clear that they are his natural siblings from, Jesus and, uh, from Joseph and Mary, and that they grew up with him, and he's begun to do a, a work of ministry. And yet his brothers do not believe in him. And the reason we can confidently say his brothers did not believe in him is a very little connecting word. The word for. It's a three-letter word. I love three-letter words. We've got a lot of beautiful ones. The... That's a helpful word. War, God. Probably the most important three-letter word in understanding the flow of verse to verse is the word for. You see it all over the Gospels, all over the Epistles, really throughout the entire Scripture, and it helps us to connect ideas from one verse to the next. In verse 4, it says the, the, the brothers of Jesus are arguing with Jesus. They're saying, 
go up to the temple and he, they, they say, for no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. They were not confident in Jesus's lordship and that Jesus actually fulfilled the promises of the Messiah. Because Jesus was claiming, I'm the son of God, I am the Messiah, the one sent from heaven to fulfill the promises that God had made both to David, Abraham, all the patriarchs, etc., and to be the fulfillment of God's promise to Israel, that I will be your God, you will be my people, and I will come and dwell in your midst. So Jesus, both in his incarnation and his missional work, he is, he is the fulfillment of all God's promises, yet his brothers do not believe in him. And it says at the beginning of verse 5, um, the reasoning for them to tell him to go up to the temple is this little word for and verse five says for not even his brothers believed in him this is the way that the that the gospel writer john here this is the way that he tells us the meaning the reason behind the question and, and uh request that these brothers had made you know jesus won't you go up and jesus tells him that he's not going to go up but he doesn't tell them that he's not going to go up at all. What he says is, I'm not going to go up in the way that you think. I'm not going to go up in the motivation that is self-seeking instead of self-sacrificial. And this is the beginning in this chapter of a series of foils. Do you know what a foil is? A foil is literally an inversion. Usually it's talked about of a character, but it can also apply to a situation. An inversion of a character or a situation from one perspective to the next. And this is the entire, um, this is the beauty of the narrative in this passage, is Jesus is saying, I'm not going to go up, but he's not lying. He's not going to go up in the way that they want to go. He's going to go up in the way that his father is going. And that includes his heart motivation. So Jesus is going to go up and he's going to do an act of mercy. And yet in the midst of this, there's a controversy in the land. Uh, people are saying of Jesus, he's the Christ, or he's just a good man, or maybe he's the prophet. Maybe he's even Elijah. Maybe he's the one who was supposed to come before the Messiah. And Jesus basically comes and shuts down all of the issues. When Jesus comes to the to the feast, and he begins to teach, he begins to bring a sword against the people, just like in the days of Moses, when a sword went through the camp to divide people from the, the side of the Lord versus the side of the foreign gods and themselves. And as his words come down, there is a division between soul and spirit. As Jesus is speaking, he demonstrates the heart motivation of those who are false followers of God and true believers in God. In verse 11, it says, the Jews were looking for him at the feast saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him. This is like Twitter. <laughs> There's much muttering going on. This is, I, I love that word. It just kind of, it, it helps you feel like when I think of muttering, I think of like mud. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a little bit of a play on words, but I think of I think of just squabbling, and um, have you ever seen uh, sometimes when monkeys and hyenas on, I watch a lot of National Geographics, monkeys and hyenas will have these little wars between them, and there's just 
incessant squabbling and the hyenas are cackling and the monkeys are squawking and it's just this ridiculous war it it when i think of demonic principalities and their kingdoms that's what i think of is this muttering there's a muttering going on in the people of god and the people of god are are being presented with god in the flesh jesus christ and they're muttering about they're saying oh he's a good man no he's leading the people astray Yet for the fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly. The religious leaders of his day, both the Pharisees and the chief priests, absolutely hated Christ, and they wanted to kill him. And because they hated him, and they wanted to kill him, they sent out for his arrest. Jesus, however, is explaining why you can test or why you can trust his ministry. And he goes on to say, um, in verse 16, my teaching is not mine, but him who sent me. Again, here's another, this is another replay of the idea of a, an idea and its inverse, or an idea and its negative. You know, if you multiply five times negative one, it's negative five. It's on the opposite end of the spectrum from, from what you had previously thought. And Jesus says, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know the teaching that it is from God, or whether I am speaking on my own authority. So there are only two outcomes, Jesus basically says. If you do desire to do the will of God, then you'll know that my teaching is from God. Now, again, put this in the context of the Feast of Booths. The Feast of Booths was the time that the Israelites came to do the will of God. They came to seek after God, and to ask for repentance and forgiveness, and to seek to restore or bring restoration to the failed relationships and sinful activity that had taken place in that year. And Jesus, in the midst of this uh, experience, in the midst of this time of worship for the nation, he comes and says, if you really want to do God's will, you know, you're here in Jerusalem because you want to do God's will, but if you really want to do God's will, you'll know that my teaching is from God. And he, he there's no, there's no middle ground here when Jesus speaks. The sword comes through and you're left sitting on one side or the other. He, he basically tells them how to test their own motivations. Again, Jesus didn't go up because of his brother's motivations, but rather because of the Father. Because the Father had a teaching, he had a, he had a call that he wanted to give to the people of Israel. And so after Jesus demonstrates the unrighteous motivations of his brothers, and he proclaims the response of faith for those wishing to do God's will, he still has one more goal, and that is to actually demonstrate God's will in the flesh. He confronts the evil people and the evil judgment of the Pharisees and the other people by uh, demonstrating how he is not speaking on his own authority, but on the one who sent him. Now, again, this is all about perspective. This is all about judgment. As we're about to see, it's all about using the right judgment. He says in verse 18, the one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. Well, stop right there, Jesus. You're the one testifying about yourself. How are you not seeking your own authority? He goes on to teach, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in, in him there is no falsehood. He then goes on to a discussion about how that Moses gave them circumcision and they'll do some circumcision uh, rites on Sabbaths if it is necessary. 
and yet they came after him for healing a person on the Sabbath. And he, he confronts them in their hypocrisy. So the challenge again is, you know, Lord or Jesus, you seem to be speaking on your own authority. Yet he puts it this way. If you're using right judgment, then he is not. Really, his goal is to demonstrate one thing, the purity of his mission. Can you trust this person named Jesus? That's, that's his issue. That's the reason he brings up this idea of authority and the one who seeks his own glory, except for the one who testifies himself, but really is seeking for the glory of the Father and doing the will of the Father. And this is his intention. It's to bring clarity to the purity of his mission. He doesn't seek his own glory, but he seeks the Father's glory. And because of this, we can trust him. The crowd, not crown, the crowd responds in the religious confusion that the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders had already been fomenting. Remember, there's this muttering going on in the people of God, and they're contesting whether or not they're, that Jesus is actually the Christ, if he actually is the Messiah. And the, the, the crowd, in the midst of this moment, after Jesus says, why do you seek to kill me? They say, who is trying to kill you? Like, you're crazy. I mean, they actually slander the person of Jesus here. They actually, to his face, says, say, you have a demon who is trying to kill you. And so you can think of it like this. The, the crowd that Jesus was teaching that day, there, there's this confusion in the people of God. There's this muttering about, and there's uh, deciding between Christ being the Messiah or just being a good prophet. And as Jesus is proclaiming to them, they react in the demonic stupor that the Pharisees and the Sadducees had created over the people with religious confusion and with their blasphemy against the person of Jesus. And so the people, in their being blinded by the influence of the religious leaders, say to Jesus, you have a demon who is trying to kill you. Now watch what Jesus does through teaching them how to use right, righteous judgment. Jesus says, I did one work. He doesn't even answer the whole demonic clause. He says, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, etc., etc. But why are you trying to kill me if on, on the Sabbath I made a whole man's body well? He says, he then teaches them, do not use judgments as according to what your eyes can see, but use right judgment, wisdom, prudence, insight from, from the Father. Don't judge according to your own man-made precepts and laws, but judge according to the way that God judges. Judge according to the, the perspective of the Father. And the very next verse, it now appears as if the people have suddenly gone from, at one point, accusing Jesus of having a demon and questioning whether someone is trying to kill him, to the very next verse saying, Oh, this is why they're trying to kill him. In verse 25, it says, Some of the people of Jerusalem, therefore, because Jesus brought this teaching about using right judgment, their eyes are being opened, and they say, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? At first, they call him a, a demonically influenced person who uh, is literally a crazy guy. I mean, think about like a person running around in a, in a hospital who's severely uh, mentally handicapped or or 
just insane out of his mind, tormented by evil spirits, what have you, running around saying, you know, fearing every one of the doctors and nurses and staff because he thinks they're trying to kill him. That's what they call Jesus. And then after he teaches them to not operate in the spirit of the Pharisees, they're delivered from their demonic stupor that they were in. And they now say, is not this the guy they're trying to kill? And then they even go on to say, he's here speaking openly and yet the Pharisees don't charge him or speak, uh, you know, any sort of accusation directly, but they try to arrest him in secret. And so the actions of the Pharisees are being brought to light here. The words of Jesus come and they, it's like a stick poking a hornet's nest. They're stirred up. They're, the, the hive, so to speak, is now uh, being, you know, unleashed upon uh Jesus here, and the Pharisees, the religious leaders, etc., they hire some officers, or they get the temple guard probably, and they're sending them off to go and get Jesus. It says, they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour did not yet come. So God the Father is sovereignly intervening in this situation, and yet he's intervening by a very specific manner, which we're about to see, the words of Jesus himself. Many of the people believed in him and said, when Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Now here you see the the perspective of the Pharisees. Their heart motivation is jealousy that they're losing their religious control over the people of God. Remember they they had created that influence on the people, which caused the people to say, Jesus has a demon. Jesus comes and brings teaching and delivers them. And now they see, yes, this is the one they're trying to kill. They recognize Christ for who he is. And the Pharisees notice that their grip of control is starting to uh, be loosened and weakened. And the, the Pharisees then make a desperate attempt to have a one-time quick fix against what's happening. In the midst of this, however, Jesus brings the call of the gospel. And this is our focus today, is what he says in the next few verses. Jesus demonstrates through his words, in the most beautiful way possible, the heart of the Father and his own mercy that he wants to bring. Christ did not come up to Jerusalem at the at the uh, behest of his brothers. That, that is, Jesus didn't come up because his brothers had said to go up. He didn't go up to create a following for himself. And just like he didn't go up because of his brother's motivations, he's also not going to leave because of the fear that may uh, come with a, a warrant of arrest from the Pharisees. Jesus, in the midst of this situation, with people who both say that he's you know, demonically influenced and people who recognize his lordship, those who say he's just a prophet or actually say he's the Messiah, in the midst of that turmoil and with officers coming to arrest him, seeking to lay hands on him and kill him, he offers up these words. Rather than turning in fear, Christ trusts the will of the Father, and he trusts that it will be done perfectly. And to the very ones seeking to kill him in that moment, he offers these words of life. On the last day of the feast, John 737, the great day Jesus stood out and cried, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. 
Then the gospel writer explains what Jesus meant. He said, now this he said concerning the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. So there is a future transaction. Okay, so Jesus is a man who claims to be God. He's standing in the midst of the people of God, and he's offering a free offer, an unqualified offer. This is what Christ, again, appeals to us today. He says, if you're a hater of God, if you would kill him, if you had the chance, you can come to me, and I'll be precious water for your soul. Now, again, the will of the Father is being done, so no one's laying a hand on Christ. And yet Christ is the one through whom the Father is acting. He's saying, if you would love to come, if you're thirsty, if you're at all unsatisfied, I can provide that water for you. If you would just come and recognize your need for me, I would be precious to you and I'd be sweet to you. And Jesus is saying these things to the very ones who are seeking to kill him, and that includes you, and that includes me. For at the time that we were haters of God, Christ died for for the ungodly. He would say to us, are you thirsty? Does that God that you've made laws out of satisfy you? Once you're done fulfilling your religious obligations for the week, are you really built up? Are you strengthened? Are you addicted to your work? At the end of your job that week, are you satisfied? Are you still thirsty? Are you still looking for something to provide water to your soul? Because if you are, you can come to me, Jesus would say. You can come to me and I'll provide you not only with water to quench your thirst, but I've got something more than that. And the promise that Jesus makes does two things. The first of all, it Un, or it disarms our uh, usual prohibitions from approaching God. Our usual prohibitions from approaching God are this. We need to clean ourselves up before God will accept us, and we need to work harder to seek after God. Not only does it disarm our usual prohibitions, but it also continues to go further than that, and it removes every ounce of self-effort. There's no qualifications. There's no conditions to be met. There are no prerequisites. There are no, absolutely no install instructions. You just have to come. You just have to come to me, Jesus says to you, and I'll be sweet to you. I'll be, I'll be water for your soul. Not only will I quench your thirst, but I'm going to do something more than that. Now, when Jesus is, is saying all of these things, He's saying this to people who are confused about who he is, people who are maybe even starting to believe that he's the Messiah, and people that are seeking to kill him. And what and the testimony that the officers bring back to the Pharisees demonstrates the effectiveness of this call, both for his original hearers and for us. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him, John 7:44. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? And the officers said, no one ever spoke like this man. Indeed, no one has ever spoken like this man. The reason why they say this is manifold. First of all, who looks their accuser, their 
arrest her in the eye and says to them, I know what you think you're doing is right, but if you would only see your need for me, you can come. And, and I'll, I'll disarm your hatred of God and I'll, I'll provide for you water for your parched soul that is attempting every other thing other than God. He, he looks at those who would literally attempt to kill him at that feast and offers a free call to come and, and to be satisfied by him. And the officers are absolutely right. No one ever has spoken like this man, and indeed no one ever could. Not only do Jesus's words disarm our usual prohibitions from coming to God, but they do something that, un, that only a non-man could do, or that is someone who is not just a man. Jesus says, not only will I quench your thirst, but I will also provide for you a spring of life. And that's something that can't be done with human power. Sure, you know, imagine a guru, whoever, it, whoever you want it to be, Dr. Phil, uh, Oprah, even, even the religious gurus in the church today, the best pastor of the biggest national whatever, none of them can say to you, if you would come to me, I'll, I'll give you water. Because every person in the, in the earth, created in the, in the image of God, has a deep, immeasurable vacuum which needs, needs to be filled with their creator. And so not only can no one ever speak this way in the past, but no one can speak this way in the future. That's what Jesus is demonstrating. He's saying, I'm the only thing that satisfies, but not only will I satisfy you, I will also place in you a spring of life. And that he spoke of the spirit, which they were about to receive. Unqualified forgiveness is only the initial astonishing element, but also the supernatural power, which Jesus both promises and has the authority to back up. That's the next element of his astonishing statement. Who but the creator can guarantee to you a spring of life that will fulfill and satisfy all of your needs? Who else has life satisfying, purpose resolving type of water? Only Jesus Christ. No one ever did and no one ever can speak in this way. But he has spoken in this way and he's still speaking to you today. He'd say to you if he were here, are you satisfied? Are you satisfied knowing that the Father loves you? Are you still working for the food which perishes? Have you begun to eat the food that the Father has, that is, to do his will? When Jesus is asked, probably the most precious line to me in the Gospels is this, when the, when the people come up to Jesus and say, what are the works of God that we are required to do? And Jesus says, the work of God is this, to believe upon the one who he has sent. That is the only work that's required in the Gospel is just to turn. And it's not even a work at all because we're taught by the Apostle Paul that we have been saved by grace through faith and both the grace and the faith are not from ourselves, but they're a gift from God. And so he offers that to us today. Let's pray.